I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook, a new podcast from the Las Cruces Sun News. This week, we take a look at the life and legacy of former New Mexico Governor and New Mexico State University Chancellor Gary Carruthers. The staff of the Sun News selected Carruthers as our distinguished resident of 2021. Friends and colleagues of Gary's describe him as... He has great integrity. He's a natural leader. Part of the reason that he was good at it is that he liked his job. He really thoroughly enjoyed doing what he was doing. I have found that I could not be more impressed, um, really humbled, and pleased to say that uh, we have more in common than than, uh, you would think. Um, And because at the end of the day, he loves New Mexico. He loves New Mexico State, and he believes in doing the right thing. He believes in public service, and we're on the same page on all of those areas. I'm very fortunate to consider him a friend, a mentor, a confidant, and somebody I can go to at any given time that will give me feedback and advice that is rooted in doing the right thing, but also in experience and wisdom. Um, he He's very charismatic. He draws people to him. Um, he treats people well. Uh, he is um, he is a sort of a transformational leader. I think his legacy is family first, um, public service. New Mexico is the most beautiful, best state in the world, and New Mexico State is its crowning glory. And I think you, if you spend enough time around him, you get that sense of him. He's got sort of a uh, offbeat sense of humor. He likes to kid people a lot, but he's very supportive and always the educator. He's very fond of donuts. That's part of the reason he was chosen as our distinguished resident. But his life, full of twists and turns, has led him from Alamosa, Colorado, to Las Cruces, to Washington, D.C., to Santa Fe, and ultimately back to Las Cruces, which he considers home. But the story of Gary Carruthers started on a warm August morning in 1939 in Alamosa. Nestled at the bottom of the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado, at age one, he moved to Cedar Hills, New Mexico, just outside of Farmington. Well, actually, I was born in the San Luis Valley in Alamosa, Colorado. It only lasted one year, and under the cover of dark, across the border into New Mexico, when my father and mother bought a farm in just around Aztec, Cedar Hill, New Mexico. Okay. So as a year-old kid, I found myself on a farm in northern New Mexico, and that's where I grew up. And I grew up with uh, three brothers, and we were farmers. And my mother was a nurse but didn't practice much after we moved to, uh, to New Mexico. And so I grew up, we were dirt poor, as many farmers in those days were, dirt poor. But... We were happy. I mean, we had plenty to eat. We grew our own vegetables. We had our own animals. We had our own milk. And uh, we went to school in, uh, in Aztec. At one time, there was a school at Cedar Hill. And uh, I was one of the first students from that, from that period that actually moved from the old one schoolhouse at Cedar Hill to Aztec Public Schools. He attended Aztec Public Schools where he excelled. The only F he ever brought home was in third grade spelling under Mrs. Beulah Goodwin, 
his mother Frankie told the Farmington Daily Times in 1984. He participated in 4-H and was a state Future Farmers of America president, a trumpet player in his school band, and the student body president at Aztec High. After graduating in 1957, he moved to Las Cruces to attend New Mexico State University and pursue a degree in agriculture. That's where he met Kathy, Catherine Thomas, at the time. And I met her at, at uh, New Mexico State University. I was out trolling for women one day uh, in the sorority houses and ran into this beautiful woman that was big smile and very gregarious. And I said, I'm going to date that woman and... and uh, and uh, did and married her. We have three children. We have uh, Debbie, who's a nurse in uh, in Houston, Texas area. Uh, Carol, who's a school teacher here at uh, early early college high school at Arrowhead Park, and Stephen, who's a banker. While Gary is oftentimes the one in the public spotlight, behind the scenes, Kathy is the one that holds the family together. Doniana County Clerk Amanda Lopez Askin who was appointed by then-Governor Susana Martinez to serve as student regent on NMSU's Board of Regents during Carruthers' tenure as chancellor, said meeting Kathy left an impression on her. I think Gary is seen as the big personality. He's seen as the one that kind of, again, takes over a room. But Kathy is as strong as they get, and um, they are an excellent, excellent team. And um, again, I'm lucky to know her as well. He's not afraid of strong women. And one thing I will say that I should have added earlier, the very first time I met Kathy Carruthers was at a, a dinner party or party at their home. And I was a new student regent. And, you know, I walk in with my little homemade brownies because that's what you do, right? When you bring something and there's this huge catered kind of affair. Uh, and so I remember telling my husband, go put the brownies in the truck, you know. <laughs> um, but but um, when I met Kathy and they introduced me as a new student regent and she took my hand and she says, honey, just so you know, Gary loves strong women. After marrying Kathy on May 13, 1961, Carruthers would go on to earn a bachelor's degree in agriculture in 1964 and a master's degree in agricultural economics the following year, both at NMSU. He got a PhD in economics from Iowa State University in 1968 before returning to NMSU that year as an assistant professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics and Agricultural Business. He worked his way along the university's tenure track and eventually became a full professor in 1979, with a few notable detours along the way. One of those was a White House fellowship under President Gerald Ford. The White House Fellow Program, which began in 1963 under Lyndon Johnson, gave people a chance to spend a year working in the nation's capital. During that time, Carruthers worked in the Department of Agriculture under then-Ag Secretary Earl Butts. At the end of the year, participants were encouraged to return to their home states and communities and engage in grassroots politics. Following that fellowship, Carruthers returned to New Mexico and served as the acting director of the New Mexico Water Research Institute from 1976 to 1978. During that same period, he was elected state chairman of the Republican Party, 
a post he held from 1977 to 1979. In 1981, he was appointed by President Ronald Reagan to serve as Assistant Secretary of the Interior of Land and Water Resources under Interior Secretary James Watt. In late 1983, he became Assistant Secretary of the Interior for Land and Minerals Management, a position he held until the end of 1984. While it may seem that Carruthers was knee-deep in politics already, I don't get the sense that he wanted to be there necessarily. Academia seems to be where his heart lied. Watt suggested he run for a seat in the U.S. Senate, but Carruthers said he had grown weary of Washington, D.C. He told Watt he might consider running for governor of his home state. That's an interesting story. I never thought I would run for governor, but uh, I became a faculty member here and became active in that process in the Republican Party. I became chairman of the New Mexico Republican Party. After only volunteering for 13 months as a Republican, I was tapped to be chairman of the New Mexico Republican Party. And in that process, I met a lot of Republicans and so on. But I had, uh, I had no particular aspiration to seek the governorship but I was appointed to be Assistant Secretary of the Interior in the Reagan administration. I worked for James Watt. So I went back to D.C. and spent four years there. And James Watt had a way of, he called it, plumbing his men. <laughs> he didn't appoint very many women, but it was plumbing his men. And so he's always plumbing his men. And one day I went into his office when he was alone. And he said, uh, Gary, have you ever thought about running for political office? He said, um, I think you ought to run for senator from New Mexico when you, when you leave. I think you ought to go back and run for Senate. And I said, no, no, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't ever want to do that. I, I'm not sure I, I like Washington, D.C. all that much. I said, if I ever wanted to be anything, it would be governor of New Mexico. And I drew He said, okay. Eventually, he found himself in a room with Interior Secretary Watt in Farmington. We're up in that area, and he's doing his usual political fundraising stuff, and it's, he was a great orator and so on. So uh, we were at a, uh, a wealthy Republican's big home with lots of Republicans around, and Watt gives his usual speech about the two rivers that come together into a river called America. He, he gave a speech so many times, I think I still remember. <laughs> but at any rate... Uh, at the end of the speech, he said, uh, he said, you people here in the Farmington area in New Mexico could do me a favor. And, of course, they loved James Watt. James Watt. He was an pro-energy guy, and, you know, they thought he walked about this far off the ground. And he said, see that guy standing in the back, pointed at me? That's Gary Carruthers. He's from here. They all knew that. He said, I want you to ask him to come back to New Mexico and seek the governorship in New Mexico. And I said, <laughs> cow. I hadn't, hadn't heard, heard that. I hadn't talked to him about it for a long time. Then Carruthers was approached by the New Mexico Amigos, a private nonprofit, nonpartisan corporation chartered under the laws of the state of New Mexico and an officially designated goodwill ambassadors for New Mexico. 
They invited him to dinner while visiting Washington, D.C. Carruthers said the bipartisan support from the Amigos is what prompted him to run. I, uh, I was able to, and there's a group called the New Mexico Amigos, and it's a big professional group, 350 members from all over the state. And they called me and asked if I could set up a meeting for the Amigos <laughs> at the White House while I was the Assistant Secretary of the Interior. And I said I could, and I got all, I got everybody but Ronald Reagan. I couldn't get him Ronald Reagan, got everybody else they wanted. So they had a great day there at the White House being briefed by Jim Baker and others. And then that night they said, I want you, can you come to dinner with some of the Migos tonight? And I said, sure, yeah. And can you bring your wife? And, and I said, yeah, I'm sure she would love to come. Went to a really expensive place, uptown, uptown place. We went there, and there were 10 or 12 of them. And they were buying the best wine you could imagine, and chitting and chatting and so on and so forth. And they said, our purpose here is to ask you. And they said, we're, all, we're both Republicans and Democrats. We're amigos, but we're Republicans and Democrats. And they didn't like Tony and I. And said, we have decided to choose our own candidate and run them. And we don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat, but we know you're a Republican. He said, we want you to come home to New Mexico at the end of your first four years here and seek the governorship in New Mexico. And if you'll do that, we'll back you and see if you can get elected. And so it was a request of 10 or 12 amigos that caused me to come back home, look at the race. I came back to New Mexico State and only stayed a while. And we decided it was a possibility because at that time, Governor Nye was not very popular. There were, 10, there were 10 Republicans expressing an interest. When they ran the first poll, I was six out of the 10. <laughs> and I had, I had like a 2% recognition. But from that point, we ran, and that's how I got into the governor's race, in large part because a group of New Mexicans asked me to come back and do it. He decided to throw his hat in the ring. He started out in a six-person primary. He was polling in sixth place with 2% name recognition. Through old-fashioned shoe-leather politicking and traveling the state, he was able to become the GOP nominee, and he'd go on to win that race. He was elected governor in 1987. His four years as governor saw few big troubles. There was one, though. Over the July 4th weekend in 1987, that's when things changed. Oh, I think in public life was a prison break where hardened criminals on death row had been on death row until Tony and I commuted their sentences had gotten out into our population. And probably the most troubling time of my life was the probably 30 or 35 days it took us to find all those guys. We found some of them sooner than later. But many of these people had committed murder. And they were out in our population. And I was at my farm when that happened. They declared their independence on July the 4th when I was at my farm in Aztec. And... Uh, I had to fly down, and I uh, 
I uh, was briefed about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning by the prison officials and the police and everything and told me who had gone and how they broke out and everything else. And the one little slip-up I made was uh, I was dealing with the press, and, and the press asked me, what did you tell the officials? What did you say to the police? And I said, as far as I'm concerned, they can shoot to kill. And that was probably one of the biggest mistakes I ever made. That's virtually illegal to do things like that when you're governor. The, the proper term is use the maximum force necessary. But because I said it and it was reported, the police, I think, felt I was on their side, what they had to do. And when we t- finally captured the last of the, of the convicts, they kicked a door in, in somewhere in California, and they had weapons there, and they didn't even reach for them. They just surrendered. We, we only had one bad incident when uh, a family in, in Flagstaff was uh, violated by some of the, the convicts. But uh, that was probably the most challenging 30 or 40 days I ever went through in my life. During his time as governor, Carruthers made a point of never speaking negatively in public about any legislator, he told me. A rule he only broke a couple of times during his four-year term. Max Call was a famous legislator of those times, and Max and I had a lot of fun. He was fond of, of calling me everything but a Republican. You know, the guy's crazy. I don't know where we got this college faculty member doing this, saying we shouldn't have people like this as governor. He go go on at a great right. And... Uh, and so the press would call, did you know Eddie Bender? Yeah, absolutely. Eddie Bender was my spin guy. And Eddie would always call me and say, well, Max calls, says this and this and this and this about you. What's your response? And I says, you, you know, Eddie, I, I, just, I just don't respond to the legislature publicly. He knew that, but he had to call. And, and so he called Max back and said, you don't want to say anything. But one day I think I'd had a sip of wine. <laughs> and Eddie called and said, Max called said this and this and this and this about you. And I said, you know what? I think Max Call has his hair curlers on too tight. Do you remember his curly hair? <laughs> I said, I think he has his hair curlers on too tight. Oh, front page, Albuquerque Journal. Governor says Max Call has his hair curlers on too tight. Oh, <laughs> no. And so I took the article, signed it, walked down to Max and said, sorry about this, Max. And he was pretty good humor about it. So we kind of went along. And then the only other time I did it happened to be with Max. Somebody wanted a photo for their campaign. The senator was running. And so I was in my office. The, the senator was there. And a friend had come back from Russia with those big wool hats that they were in the steps. Right. And it was sitting on my desk. And the photographer from the journal said, what's that? And I told him. And he's put that on. I'd like a picture of that. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll put it on. I said, this is my Max Call outfit. <laughs> and he took a picture, and I said, no, you can't use it. You just give me the picture. Put it in the Albuquerque Journal front page. <laughs> Governor Crow's Max Call. Had to take it about. That's the only two times in my career, publicly, I ever said anything derogatory, negative, or anything. I said positive things about him, but I never challenge him publicly. Some years later, he told me that he said, many years later, 
I never thought I would see the day that I would say the Carruthers administration was a great administration. And he said it was because you worked with all the legislators. You worked with hand and glove. He also made it a point to build relationships across the aisle. As governor, he told me, he could walk onto the floor of the legislature whenever he wanted. On a few occasions, it became necessary to keep the peace. I'm the old-style politician back more like in the Reagan years when Reagan worked with Tip O'Neill and, and Reagan would go to the Capitol and everything else. When I was governor, I had several little rules. One, when the session was on, and I had a full schedule, but if any legislator wanted to see me, we, we would hold a person back and say, and they knew not to take too long, but they could walk in and say, I need to see the governor on this bill right now, and they would stop the next appointment and say, excuse me, the governor needs to see this person. And, and, and I would meet with the leadership of the Republicans and Democrats, sometimes weekly, pour them a glass of wine or, or whiskey, talk about things, debate the issues there. But most of all, I walked on the floor. And I don't think any other governor's ever done that. And I would go down periodically. And I would just walk. And as governor, I was permitted to come on the floor without question. And I'd walk along and shake hands with them, ask how the family was doing, ask how the session was going. I'd go over to the other chamber and do the same things. And it got to the point when it became rather acrimonious. When it became acrimonious, a Democrat actually came up and said, Governor, can you come down to the floor? It's getting out of hand. Come down and greet the people and see if they'll settle down just a little bit. And I did. (laughs) After leaving the governorship, Carruthers ended up launching Cimarron Healthcare. But when I when I left the government, I joined two Sharon and I joined Sharon Jones and I joined two entrepreneurs, and we had a concept of a company that we would find capital for others. And I was kind of the front guy. These guys were more technical. One was a lawyer and one was a CFO kind of guy. And uh, one of the first deals we did was for a young man that wanted to buy a small insurance company we'll call third-party administrators that actually paid the claims back in those days for people that had indemnity claims. And so we worked up that deal. We worked up that deal for the young man. He took it to his partners. They fired him. We had a deal. We had money, money borrowed and everything else. So we ended up doing the deal, and I got into the insurance business, quite inadvertently, never intended to be in that business. Fell into it. Well, we found out we didn't know anything about insurance. But I went to an Iowa State University alumni party, and, and a guy there named Jerry Langraff was there. And he said, well, Governor, what are you doing nowadays? And I said, well, we're in this little insurance company, and I'm not sure what we're doing. He says, well, I've got to non-compete with Presbyterian for another two or three months, but I'm going to get back into business, and I'm going to need to start up a company like that. And I said, don't bother, I've got one. <laughs> so we merged with a guy that really knew a lot about health insurance. And then, so we were going along trying to do something. Uh, we decided that we, uh, we'd like to have our own health plan. It, uh, it really wasn't going very well. Just when things were beginning to look grim, Cimarron became the fourth healthcare plan to earn a lucrative Medicaid contract from the state of New Mexico. That was under then-Governor Gary Johnson. 
and it was a much-needed shot in the arm for the company's long-term success. So Medicaid, the Medicaid contract came up, and I ran into a person I knew, the administrator of the University of New Mexico Hospital, and he said, he said, we need a health plan because they're going to bid Medicaid and you have to have a, a health insurance plan. So we joined them, and quite fortuitously, it's a long story, fortuitously, we won one of the first Medicaid contracts in New Mexico. Huh. There, were, there were three of them, and we, got, we were the last one to get one. And from that little start, we developed a company called Cimarron Health Plan. And so uh, uh, from that point, we began to develop Cimarron. It was several years of almost losing the company after taking new investors. Eventually, they were approached by Molina Healthcare, which expressed an interest in buying them out. Carruthers told me the offer was much more lucrative than he ever expected. But I had kept, kept in touch with a guy from Molina Healthcare, and he would come by from time to time, from time, to time and he was from Santa Fe, and he would, he would come and, and talk to me how things were going. And then one day, he started taking an interest in Cimarron. Well, we were kind of struggling along to the point we thought we either got to buy some plans in other states or we got to sell this one. We decided to sell Cimarron. Went into negotiations. A company, we did not know at the time, Molina, said, we will neg- negotiate with you for 120 days, and then uh, we'll see if we can make a deal. And so we said, oh, my gosh, I hope we can sell this company for $20 million. And... Uh, and we thought we just died and gone to heaven. They came back and offered us $72 million for the company. And, uh, and I wish I'd have had a whole lot bigger portion of the stock, to be honest with you. But <laughs> that was a heck of a good deal. And anyway, my leadership of the company had a lot to do with my, my government background and my knowledge of the Medicaid programs and that sort of thing. So while we had a really good team, my my focuses on the Medicaid program in New Mexico. And I spent a lot of time after we sold that chairing the Medicaid uh, advisory committee. And then I spent seven years on the board of Molina uh, that had acquired uh, Cimarron. So I spent a good share of my time in the insurance business and principally in the Medicaid side. Shortly after the Cimarron buyout, another opportunity came along. I took the job after I decided to retire from Cimarron. And I, and I said, well, I've got four or five years to give, and then I'm going to retire. So at age 63, I was thinking about retirement. A faculty member called me from here and said, hey, Gary, there's a, there's a job opening that you might want to take a look at. They're looking for the dean of college of business at New Mexico State. And that's, that's something you, you've always talked about wanting to go back to New Mexico State. You ought to take a look at that. And I said, okay. So I called up... Uh, a guy named Floros that was uh, the provost, and I said, is that job of dean still open? He said, yeah, but you better get your paperwork in by tomorrow afternoon because we're going to select the dean. Uh, we're going to select the finalists on Friday. So in a one-day application, I, I threw it in there. I became a finalist, came down and interviewed, and was selected by he and others to be the dean. The, the greatest accomplishment, I think, in, in the College of Business, were probably twofold. Our enrollment grew to the highest it's ever been. It was it was a very problem. All of our majors are very popular, and I think I think it was probably the zenith of uh, 
of the College of Business enrollment was during my tenure there. The second thing that I was very proud of is out of the College of Business, we grew the Arrowhead Center. And myself, Kevin Burberg, and Kathy Hansen, working from the College of Business, developed the Arrowhead Center, which is now recognized as one of the, one of the best uh, economic development apparatuses in universities in this part of the world. So I would say those two things. Lots of enrollment, excellent faculty. And those were, uh, Damien, those were tranquil times. Those weren't disruptive times like we had. So I was lucky in, in part not to go through too many recessions as a college. But uh, it, was, it was a fun place to work because I could walk out in the lobby and talk to students. I could lecture when I wanted to. I was always around students and bright faculty members. It was just such a pleasure to get up in the morning and go to work. It was a position he'd hold for 10 years and one he'd describe as the best job he ever had. Well, let me first say that's the best job I ever had in my life. I love being dean of the College of Business. Then in 2012, another opportunity came along when President Barbara Couture left the university, resigning her post in what Board of Regents Chairman Mike Cheney called a mutually agreeable separation. Dan Howard, who was runner-up in the process, went on to become the university's provost under Carruthers. Well, I actually met Gary, I think we formally met when I was department head of biology, and he was, at that point, dean of the School of Business. And uh, I would uh, say that over the period of time we did, we, we, we knew each other sort of on the professional level. We didn't really know each other on the personal level during that period of time. I left for five years um, to go to uh, the University of Colorado Denver, where I was Dean of Arts and Sciences. And then Gary and I both competed for the presidency of New Mexico State University. I got two votes from the regents, and he got three votes from the regents. And uh, I sent him a congratulatory note after uh, this, um, and uh, he got back to me very quickly and, and basically said, you know, I think that it would be great to have you come back to New Mexico State, not as president, but as provost, if you're interested, um, and if I can get an okay from the faculty and from the regents. Um, and, uh, and, and that was how I ended up coming back and working with Gary for five years, which I think is a signal of the confidence he has in himself uh, he was not worried that uh, he needed to be looking over his shoulder at me. I think he had confidence that I would do the job and we worked well together, and we did. We became, I don't think we were great personal friends when we started, but we are great. But we ended five years later as great friends, and it was just such a pleasure to work with him for five years. Carruthers' tenure as chancellor and president was fraught with budgetary issues. He said he had to make a number of difficult decisions, but by and large, university staff came together to make the necessary cuts. During this time, he had to dissolve a number of faculty and staff positions, but he was able to do it without layoffs, largely through vacancy savings. In particular, the recession really made it challenging to be chancellor in New Mexico State University. But I would tell you this, uh, with respect to that period that we went through, 
we ended up cutting about $38 million, as I recall, from the budget at New Mexico State University over that period of time. And it was challenging, but you do it by, by going back to the faculty and the staff and reasoning with them and finding out programs that you could dismiss, programs that could cut, cut back and everything else. And I remember I was at the Fulton Center for some function, and, um, and I got in an elevator with just a guy. He's a faculty member. And he said, um, he said, well, Chancellor, how are you doing? And I said, well, under the circumstances in which I find myself, I guess I'm doing okay. And he looked at me and he said, we will sail this ship together through the stormy sea. And that I consider one of my highlights in my life. We sailed the ship together through the stormy sea. And we didn't have, we had to cut programs. It was not, not fun to do that. But our challenge at that time was principally financial. One of the hardest cuts involved the university's equestrian team, he said. And the, and the one that really hurt most of all, and I don't know if you attended that session, I think it was a public session, is when we had to eliminate the equestrian team. I do. And, the, and, those, and there were all of these. Those girls the, and their families were. The athletes crying and everything. And it just tore my heart out that, that we had to do that. But it was one of the things that happens when you run out of money. Janet Green recalls that period. One that was probably written about significantly at the time was the equestrian program at the at the university. And having students come to your Board of Regents meeting and express that the only reason they chose New Mexico State University was because of the equestrian program, or now that they weren't going to have a scholarship, they might not be able to finish school. Those types of things are gut-wrenching. But sometimes you're left with a set of circumstances that you have to manage the company that you're leading and make tough decisions. And I think that's an example of a very hard decision that he and the, and the senior team had to make that he knew would impact students. The university, which receives the bulk of its funding through state legislative appropriations and federal grants, saw its state funding vetoed by Governor Susana Martinez in 2017 at the height of the crisis. Carruthers spoke out against the cuts. Then-student regent Amanda Lopez-Askin recalls that time. Uh, right, and obviously the biggest surprise was, you know, uh, the higher ed funding being cut by the governor and that being something that became um, a flashpoint and or a, you know, uh, for sure a, a very public disconnect, which was unfortunate, um, but it was handled, you know, in a subsequent special session, and, and we figured it out. And frankly, you know, the university and the administration are constantly working on budget and monitoring. So although it may seem like a quick turnaround, it's a it's a day-to-day grind of wh- what are we doing, where are we going, where are we at, and, you know, staff did that. So uh, it was something that I learned from greatly. And, you know, what I knew to be true at the end of it was that the fiscal responsibility that we are entrusted with, not only as a board, but also with the chancellor, um, was was um, well handled. And that the, the trust that, that we're given was was very, very uh, for, foremost in our minds in terms of like decisions we needed to make. The university was also seeing a decline in enrollment. Jim Peach then a regent's professor of economics, said declining enrollment had long plagued the university. We had declining enrollment. 
throughout that period. And actually, the declining enrollment started long before he became president and chancellor. Uh, and yet he took the heat for that. At the same time, Governor Susana Martinez was pressuring the state's universities not to raise tuition. Here's Amanda Lopez asking. One of the things we've spoken an awful lot about um, with with both uh, Dr. Carruthers and his his uh, colleagues are uh, is the the difficult years that NMSU uh, during your time as student region his time as uh, chancellor correct um there were some stormy waters there there were enormous funding issues um there were some enrollment issues mm-hmm. there was pressure uh including uh on on you i presume uh as a student regent not to uh raise tuition during that time mm-hmm. um what reflecting on that time what is what is he like as a leader so i think the innate confidence that he has the understanding of um, not just academia but also business was invaluable to the university in such an unprecedented time of budget cuts and change that had to be implemented and implemented quickly the university could not have had a better person at the helm and his steady influence and support of i think faculty staff and students was was felt uh, consistently now people and even myself may not always agree with him or some of the decisions and most of the time frankly i did uh, but at the end of the day, I knew in my bones that he was doing everything he could uh, for the best interest of the university, the community, and the students. And he always looked at the students as 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 a priority and who we were serving. Um, and and considering the challenges that he had, again, I think it was a twelve million dollar budget cut. We had to just chop, chop, chop. Right? Uh, it was. As, he as did an outstanding job. Sharon Jones recalls how difficult that period was for the university. That one is pretty easy. The biggest, when we started to try to realign the university so that it could sustain when it was under such uh, physical pressure um, with year after year after year of reduced um, uh, support from the state and, and the pressure not to raise tuition, which is the only two ways you can make money in the university. <laughs> and We're, we're, uh, we're going to cut off both of your hands. But, uh. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so when we started that effort, it was the, everybody at the university was involved. Each department of each college uh, or, or uh, financial side, whatever it was, had to go through and begin to look at how can I streamline this organization so that we can still be effective, still deliver the product to our students, and and do it in a more efficient way, which is sort of hard for a university sometimes. That effort was absolutely monumental. But there wasn't any backbiting. He had a few people who were complaining about it. They knew the situation we were in. So the effort to move that to the point that it went as far as, as long as he was there was absolutely monumental. 
In 2017, after four years on the job and about 10 months before the end of his contract, he was notified by the NMSU Board of Regents that his contract would not be considered for renewal. I spoke to several of Carruthers' NMSU colleagues about what he was like as a leader. Here's Dan Howard. Well, he has great integrity. That was one of the things that just always shone through in all my interactions with Gary. The question was always, was, was always what's the right thing to do? Um, and, and then do it, and do it regardless of political consequences. But if it was the right thing for the university, we were going to do that. During that period of time, a lot of what we were trying to do was simply preserve the core mission of the university during a period in which resources were limited. Um, and so... Uh, we did uh, concentrate during that period of time on trying to trim the administration of the university. We cut a lot of positions, but they were never, there were very few cuts that were made through layoffs. The cuts were uh, mostly made, uh, almost entirely made through people leaving their positions and then not replacing them. Right. Um, we really worked hard during that period. So, so. But getting back to the leader thing, he was simply a joy to work with in that he was he hired good people, let people do their jobs. He was not a micromanager, but he had high expectations. I mean, he was very aware of what was going on across the university. And if things were not working well, he stepped in. But he gave everybody a lot of latitude to make the decisions they needed to make to make their operations as efficient as possible and to serve the students and the staff and the faculty as well as possible. Jim Peach. He changed the attitudes on campus. Now, there was a feeling, I think, that despite the cuts, the university was moving in the right direction. And then you can point to all kinds of specific accomplishments. Uh, Arrowhead Center and the Arrowhead Research Park um, that, that's now a thriving uh, area uh, was nothing before he came back. And as it turns out, he signed the legislation that allowed for that when he was the governor. Um, and then the Earl College of Osteopathic Medicine and all of the fundraising that he did. Now, he knew uh, almost everybody in the state, it seemed. Um, and they would always, if, if he called, people would return his telephone calls. Despite financial hardships, Carruthers was able to leave a legacy at NMSU. Perhaps most notably, he brought public-private partnerships to the university. Talk to me about um, private-public partnerships. I think that's part of the legacy that uh, you left behind at NMSU, and and that seems to play in really well with uh, what we're discussing here. Well, uh, I, I started in public-private partnerships when I was governor, and I, I determined, by the way, prisons are very expensive, and, and I found out from some investigations, that the private sector could provide the prison services a lot less expensively than we were doing it. So my 
first great privatization effort was the private prison grants that I think only recently was turned over to the state, but has been there for several years. Believe it, it uh, returned to the state this year, yeah. actually. But, but it lasted that long, and we saved a lot of money doing that. Another privatization thing I tried was I've, computers and computer systems are very difficult, and even back then when they are a lot simpler, it was difficult to find the right kind of people to work inside the government to do it. So I actually took one agency and outsourced the, all their computer-based systems to a company called CDM or something like that. And they ran it for, for about three years, kept all of our employees, cost us less money, and did a better job than we were able to do internally because they were a big company. The next governor come along and pulled that contract because he preferred for it to be back in, in the public sector. I believe that the private sector, there's certain things that they do better than the public sector, and if that's the case, you ought to let them do it. And when you get to New Mexico State, probably one of, the, one of the finest things we've done out there in a long period of time is when I first became chancellor, I was told by the previous president that there was a letter on my desk that, um, that I ought to read and consider, but he said I didn't want to handle it because it's a long-term project, and I said fine. I read it, and it was uh, a letter from a fellow named George who wanted to know if we would allow a private college of osteopathic medicine on, on the New Mexico State University campus. I read the letter, and I wrote back to George, and I said, yeah, I'll give it a look. And I said, there's one thing I have to tell you, though. There has to be a barrier between your private college and public money. We cannot give you public money because we have the University of New Mexico Medical Center. So you're truly going to be private, private, because we're not going to be able to offer you anything. So then you're going to have to pay us for the rental and, and land space and that sort of thing. We put that thing together in probably 15, 20 months and started what I think is one of the better public-private partnerships in the state of New Mexico, a full-fledged college of uh, osteopathic medicine on a great land-grant university campus, borrowing each from each reputation. So... Uh, public-private partnerships are, are, to me, critical uh, going forward. And the uh, the convention center and the uh, and the hotel both went in during your ten- tenure. Is that correct? Actually, I promoted the convention center, and uh, was a, I was a dean at the time, so I was not the chancellor at the time that that happened. The I was chancellor when we invited someone to put a hotel on the campus at New Mexico State, and I went through that process. And that's, uh, I, by the time they had opened it, I was retired. But I went through the whole process of setting up and, uh, and, and groundbreaking and that sort of thing. I remember uh, talking about the recession. Um, during that period, uh, your time as chancellor, NMSU was uh, land rich, but uh, money poor. Yep. Uh, at the time, and there there was a lot of uh, of university land that was uh, sold off during that time, wasn't there? We didn't sell very much, to be honest with you. We, we sold small parcels, but most of those parcels were sold under our Arrowhead program. Under Arrowhead, you know, one of the other companies we started the development. There was Arrowhead Development, and uh, we would sell a parcel of land. For example, up uh, 
north of University Avenue where there's some apartment building. We would sell that land in an investment, invest that money in developments. We wanted like the one that's uh, as you cross the interstate highway where the old golf clubhouse was. Right. We used that money to develop that piece of property for commercial use. So what land we sold, which was not very much, has been invested in, th- in projects of that type. He's credited with the partnerships and the founding of the Burrell College of Osteopathic Medicine, the Arrowhead Park Development, Arrowhead Park Early College High School and Medical Academy, the Domenici Institute, the Lou and Patsis Barrow Park, and the on-campus chapel, a non-denominational spiritual center on campus located just west of the Pan American Center. Here's how those who worked closely with Carruthers reflect on the legacy he left at NMSU. Here's Sharon Jones, who was executive assistant to the governor during his administration, was with him when he started the Cimarron Healthcare Plan and would go on to serve as Carruthers' chief of staff at NMSU. I think his legacy is a reminder to public to his friends that there he, he his quiet confidence has always taken him forward he has not ever taken the credit for when things happened because he knows it can't happen by himself and he as i stated earlier his ability to bring people along in a disparate situation on a disparate subject and bring them forward. I just, I just think that's so unusual and so very productive. And I think everybody who has served with him, most who have served with him, would would claim that to be something that made things successful. Janet Green was chief of staff for the Board of Regents, and has known Gary for more than forty-five years since. She was a student at NMSU. I think he has a legacy of leadership, integrity, and community service. I think uh, those three things. I think he he did a great job when he was elected by uh, New Mexicans to lead the state back in the 1980s. I think he did a good job of building a solid reputation for a health insurance company that he led when he was living in Albuquerque. And then he, I asked him um, why he chose to put his hat in the ring to become chancellor of the university after he'd been nominated every time there had been a presidential vacancy. And he said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And he said to me, because I feel this is a time that I can do some things that can help New Mexico State University. And it wasn't about becoming um, the chancellor or the president or the prestige or anything like that. It was this heartfelt thing with him that he thought he could really help the university, help the state, help the community. And I think that's, that's his legacy, is really living what he says he's going to do and following through. Here's Jim Peach. Well, his, 
his legacy, I think, is that he is one of the, the very best president's chancellors. There was no chancellor before he got here. That was a title that was conferred on him because of the system. Uh, but he's one of the best. If you look back over the history of all presidents at NMSU, uh, the only one who would compete with Gary Carruthers, in my view, would be Gerald Thomas. Um, both were just excellent presidents. Uh, both cared about students. Both cared about the future of the university. And both had to do some really hard things. So I think his legacy will be that he's one of the best. Uh, while I was at NMSU, I had 14 or 15 presidents in 40 years. Um, he offered a sense of stability and integrity. Um, it, it's just unparalleled. Here's Sharon Jones. I think his legacy is a reminder to the public, to his friends, that there, he, he, his quiet confidence has always taken him forward. He has not ever taken the credit for when things happened because he knows it can't happen by himself. And he, as I stated earlier, his ability to bring people along in a disparate situation on a disparate subject and bring them forward, I I just I just think that's so unusual and and so very productive. And I think everybody who has served with him, most who have served with him, would would claim that to be something that made things successful. Some close to Gary said they weren't sure how a man so used to being busy would settle into retirement. Here's Sharon Jones. Uh, he, he seems very comfortable and um, naturally a people person, and he is. But he's also a very private, um, a thoughtful, uh, always looking to learn kind of, of person. So he is quite comfortable in his retirement skin, I think. Uh, I didn't think early on that that was going to that it would come easily, and I, I retired two years before him because of my husband's illness. And it, I know how long it took me to turn off the little clock in the back of your head that's saying you're supposed to be doing something, you know, get up and do something. And Gary, um, I thought he would have a harder time, but he has, he enjoys his time. He. Um, uh, still reads lots, uh, watches old Western movies, and sits and visits with Kathy. So and certainly, um, retirement's probably a whole lot more enjoyable with uh, with the kids here. Correct. Yes, it is. And 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 all of oh, two of the three children are here in Las Cruces, and the oldest Debbie comes often. And yes, uh, they have their children and their grandchildren. But he's embraced the role and seems to relish his free time. He maintains a close circle of friends, and they've been able to get together regularly since his retirement. 
Janet Green. He's a servant leader as well because um, he did things that probably weren't on his hit parade of what he wanted to do as either a young professor or whatever. But if the university called for it and it was good for him, his family, and the university, he would do it. He, um, he works harder than anybody that, that works around him. So when I was on his staff, um, he was often the first person in the office and the last one to leave. That might surprise a, a little people. He talks a lot about playing golf, but um, he works pretty darn hard, too. Um, one of the things that I recall when I was working with him when he was at the College of Business is on a holiday, he would let the staff go at 2 or 3 in the afternoon, and then he'd stay till 5 and answer all the phones in the lobby of the College of Business or <laughs> the governor's office or wherever it was. And that's part of that servant leader that you see with him. Here's Amanda Lopez asking. Well, I would just like to add that I think there's something really, frankly, very interesting and unique about this idea that this, this you know, myself, this humble girl from, you know, um, Las Cruces, New Mexico, considers among her confidence a friend, um, you know, a former governor, chancellor, and one of the most successful people to ever come out of New Mexico. And I just think that goes to show the things that we do have in common, specifically our love for our community and our faith in what New Mexico can and will do is is overrode, all over, overridden all of that, and that um, you know, I, I again have said this. I'm fortunate. I'm fortunate to be in uh, at the table of you know many people, including you know Dan Howard and and Dr. Peach and you know of course Governor Crothers and Sharon Jones and Janet Green and Liz Ellis and these folks that I met at NMSU that I feel like I got custody of at the end of at the end of the the break and that um, and that you know that that is something that connects us and that New Mexico, these are the kind of things like you can talk to your elected officials. You can sit at the and have coffee with a former governor and talk about your work and they can give you advice. I mean, those that's kind of a very cool thing. And so I think highlighting the what you would think would be very different, but in actuality is is really connected is something I think is is special and important. And it's been something that I'm I'm exceptionally proud of. At eighty two, he also still feels time to hit the golf course regularly. And I'm told uh, he's still got quite a drive. Well, at one time he was a very good golfer. He carried about a seven handicap. And uh, he played a lot of golf at at, uh, New Mexico State University before they had irrigation. And it was a totally different course there. But um, he still hits a really good drive. And uh, I played with him a couple months ago. I think he shot something in the high 80s. So he's still got a pretty good game. And... We just need to get out there and enjoy the wonderful Las Cruces sunshine. He also enjoys collecting classic cars. He owns three 1967 Ford Mustangs, which you can see online at www.lcsun-news.com. I also asked those close to him what people might be surprised to learn about Gary behind the scenes. Here's Jim Peach. Maybe that he's been affiliated with NMSU since the 1950s when he when he came here as a student, and that he loves the place. He absolutely loves NMSU. Um, surprised? That's a really good question. 
I, I think most people would be surprised at how accessible he is. Sharon Jones. He is not always as extroverted as people believe him to be. Uh, he, he seems very comfortable and um, naturally a people person, and he is. But he's also a very private, um, a thoughtful, uh, always looking to learn kind of, of person. Dan Howard. I think that people would be, I think the thing that would probably be a, a great surprise to people is Justin, because he comes across as this very jovial, I mean, he can come across in person as very self-deprecating, and he is, and, 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 and a, a jokester of sorts, he's, he's, he's very funny, and, but this is a very serious guy when it comes to the things that he thought were important. I think people would be surprised at how seriously he took uh, his role as president and chancellor, how seriously I know he took his role as governor. Um, this is a guy who just believed in the transformative power of NMSU. Uh, and I think it is that seriousness behind closed doors that people would have been surprised to, to see that there was this other Gary who was deeply thoughtful, incredibly good memory, asked great questions, um, and was always searching for the right thing to do. Gary Carruthers has accomplished much during his 82 years, and we hope that this helps you better understand why he was chosen as our Las Cruces Sun News Distinguished Resident for 2021. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. Please subscribe to the Las Cruces Sun News to read all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces. Until next time, I'm Damian Willis. Thanks for listening.